I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today is one of a handful of female intercollegiate executives, a native of the West Coast, cum laude graduate from the University of Mass and a law degree from Berkeley. Gloria Navarez not only is the commissioner of the West Coast Conference, but serves on the newly formed NCA National Constitution Committee. Gloria has had on-campus experience working for Joe Castiglione at Oklahoma, and, and before her present position as the commissioner of the West Coast Conference, she was Larry Scott's number two executive at the Pac-12. She was part of conference expansion, international expansion, and rescuing three UCLA players that had been arrested in China. Our guest today, the affable, articulate, high-energy Gloria Navarez. Welcome, friends. In today's world of sports, trying to find elite female leaders is not easy. Our guest today not only was an outstanding basketball player, but earned her law degree and is currently the commissioner of the West Coast Conference. And all you have to do is think about Gonzaga and how close they came last year and understand that Gloria Navarez is one of the real elite leaders in intercollegiate athletics. Gloria, let's talk a little bit about your journey. Basketball player, you grow up in the in the Northern California area, and you end up going to UMass to play basketball, and then you come back to Berkeley to get your law degree. So how's that all happen? One, thanks for having me, Jed. Appreciate the time. Yeah, so, you know, grew up in the Bay Area playing softball and basketball, and I wouldn't say I was outstanding at basketball, but (laughs) more of a hustle kid, glue kid. Um, Ended up getting a scholarship to UMass, and, you know, it was just such a game changer for me. Finally, you know, kind of getting out of California, seeing a different culture, experiencing new things, and ended up being a sport management major as an undergrad, which was kind of a blossoming field at the time. Few undergrad programs, a lot of grad programs, and really kind of haven't looked back since. It's really been a great match for me. You graduate with that law degree, you, you check out a law firm, and then you decide, hey, that's not that's not for me. And you begin the intercollegiate route on campus. So talk a little bit about that journey. I mean, during that uh, course of time, you were at your conference you're currently in. Uh, you had a chance to work with one of the legendary athletic directors and Joe Castiglione in Oklahoma. And then uh, joining Larry Scott's staff. And with Larry, I mean, what you did in terms of uh, international play in China Australia, and then getting the UCLA players that were, were had trouble in uh, China, 
released. So there's some things to, uh, to unpack in what I've just described. So let's talk a little bit about that, if you would. When I graduated, much like many of these student athletes out there, I didn't have a lot on my resume because I'd been playing basketball and it's just a long season. And it was prior to really having an understanding about allowing internships and that type of thing. So, you know, I took the LSAT and did okay and ended up getting into Berkeley Law. And as you said, I, I had a cup of coffee in a law firm after law school and realized, oh, I'm just not cut out for the billable hour. Um, but during law school, I was able to do an internship with their compliance department. And this was at the beginning of compliance. One guy for 27 sports, 950 athletes. Now modern compliance offices are at least eight to 10 guys, all with guys and gals, all with law degrees. So, you know, I bumble down the hill at Berkeley and say, hey, do you need help? And he's like, absolutely. He was investigating a major infraction at the time with Jelani Gardner, basketball player accused of receiving dollars from Todd Bozeman, their coach. So I basically helped run the shop while he was out chasing around FedEx packages of cash. And that's when I said, you know, this is what I want to do. I graduated law school. And had to take like a 50% pay cut from my law job. Had to move in with friends because I couldn't afford to live by myself. <laughs> and I became the first full-time compliance person at San Jose State. Basically built that program. Um, recruiting logs were let were in a file drawer monitored by the water polo coach. I mean, this was the beginning of modern compliance offices. And uh, from there, I jumped to um, Cal Berkeley when my mentor there, Dan Coonan, left for another job and from Berkeley I then went to West Coast Conference the first time and then to your point Joe Castiglione took a chance on some no-name woman out of the WCC as one of his senior associates and that was really my first big opportunity to get kind of out of that compliance lane and into broad athletic department management. I'd worked with Joe. I mean, my first year at Oklahoma, we went to a national champ football game with Sam Bradford, an elite eight with Blake Griffin on the men's side basketball, and a final four with Courtney Paris on the women's side. It was the best athletic experience ever. It was amazing. I looked at Joe. I'm like, is this what it's like every year here? <laughs> you can't get much better. And then after about three and a half years at Oklahoma, the Pac-12 came calling and you know, I am a Bay Area person. My family's here. My parents are here. And it was just really an interesting opportunity to get to an organization that was really looking at fundamental widespread change. I mean, the PAC at the time had been kind of a sleepy governance office. And Larry's a task, directive, and objective was to turn it into a modern media entity, you know, Power Five conference, which was really fun to be part of. Yeah, no doubt. But talk about the uh, experience overseas on how that was pushed, because that was one of Larry's uh, mandates. So he wanted to, to expand, expand the brand. And, Absolutely. And go, to go international. And not just athletics, the presidents of the Pac-10, now 12, really saw, you know, that Pacific Rim as bolstering both enrollment, research opportunities, fundraising, everything. They have such a strong connection with the Pac-12 schools. And athletics was nearly the front door to get us over there. And Larry really came up big with a deal with Alibaba. And, you know, 
that company sponsoring us and bringing those, building those games, one operationally, just a huge learning experience and a challenge, but globally and exposure wise, that was just an unbelievable experience. And what it did for the Pac-12 schools that engaged in that game, every one of them came back with huge stories about new partnerships, new research opportunities, or just straight up fundraising dollars because they were able to be there in person and have a reason to gather their alums. And then then we hit a little bump in the road when some of our student athletes decided they didn't want to pay for some sunglasses. And I got to spend some quality time getting to know the Chinese legal system. (laughs) Yeah. How did you end up extricating them? Well, myself and a a handful of other Pac-12 folks were there already as the advanced team with the team in Hangzhou. We were about a week before the actual game. And so, you know, we had a a lot of help from our partners at Alibaba. We had this great um, PR crisis communication firm in Trail Runner. And, you know, it was just really spending nights and days working with the Chinese authorities to figure a way out. And, you know, in the end, it was it was good. They let us take the players home and gave us passports, but it was a little bit stressful there for at least uh, two days. Uh, I'm sure that had to be. I, I know it was stressful back in the U.S. listening to what was happening. You went back to the West Coast Conference. How did that happen? You know, I was at had been in my eighth year, I think, with the Pac-12. Still challenged, still with a lot of cool stuff to do. And, you know, the search firm reached out to me and I had never thought that job would be open. That kind of job people get into and stay for, you know, double digit years. But the commissioner had been hired away at the NCAA. And I said, wow, if there was ever a leadership position that would interest me, this was one. I knew the league. I know I knew a lot of the people. We've got a lot of double digit year employees up and down the footprint because it's a great league and these are great jobs. And even though we're a smaller non-BCS entity, we win. I mean, it, there isn't a sport where we don't sniff or achieve national titles from women's soccer to men's golf to volleyball. I mean, it, it's an amazing thing how well this league competes across all sports, not to mention Gonzaga men's basketball, you know, right out in front, tilting for the, the champ game. So you're in an unusual time in intercollegiate athletics. I, we talk about uh, amateur athletics, NIL, uh, the Supreme Court decision. Talk a little bit about how that's impacted your schools and how you think it's going to impact uh, the intercollegiate world. No doubt we are at a crossroads. And I think we're going to see widespread change in how we govern ourselves and, and do our business. And I think it's all good change. I I don't shy away from change, but I also, what our leagues and schools really do well, I think, is compete in athletics in accordance with our mission and values as institutions. And we are, you know, the faith-based institutions along the West Coast are very, very um, aligned for a league. And that's what I really like. I, I have no fear that we're going to enter this new realm in accordance with our mission and values and do very well. We've got the West Coast kind of media markets and cutting edge technology in a lot of our schools. So for me, it presents a lot of great opportunities. However, on the other hand, I do serve on the NCAA's Constitutional Redrafting Committee. 
And there's some big fundamental issues that we need to iron out from a, a national government structure. So what do you, and when discussing that in more depth, what are the issues that you think are the top to mind? You know, they were laid out in the kind of announcement about it, but really the ability to make policy, national governing policy, in a, in a more nimble fashion. I mean, we've all tracked, you know, the work around name image likeness, the work around transfer, our system just so huge and bureaucratic, it's very hard to move things through the system to address up and coming issues. So I think becoming more nimble as a national association is one. And I think, you know, there's a, a, a lot of change that's happened from when first the system was set up and BCS football is a much different entity than it was, I think, when we first started this so, current governance structure. I mean, one of the things is an outsider looking at it, the fact that you have Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, and you're trying to make rules with the Division Two and Division Three people, when Division One, you know, you've got, you know, you're, you're, as you mentioned, the, the, the Bowl Football Alliance group, and then you've got the, the Big East and yourselves that don't play football at that level. Uh, so how, how do how do rules get how do things get adjusted to because you've got different levels of where everyone is right and you know frankly I don't know much about the division two and division three space but from my perspective they're fine you know and they're not what's holding division one back I think within division one you've got the BCS football you've got you know non-scholarship FCS football, and then you got those of us who don't have football as part of our league structure. The WCC is unique. We've got BYU, BCS independent, and we've got University of San Diego, non-scholarship FCS football. Right. And that really is, you know, we have no governing really authority over FBS football, but yet they're subject to the rules that govern the whole membership. So there's something that's got to give there because I, I do think that high level football needs to be more fleet as does the rest of the association. I mean, it's restrictive in a way in terms of you know, what's allowed. I mean, even when you look at sports like baseball and when you talk to the power five uh, baseball coaches, you know, you have so many scholarships, but then you have ways that, Universities are able to endow other ones, get the mother from, so they can break the rules, but not really break the rules in terms of how they're able to uh, give aid to uh, their student athletes. And I think seeing what happened with the NCAA women's basketball tournament this year, I think really, you know, kind of set general public's eye in terms of how things have to be balanced. And, how they've and, got and that's a great example. I mean, in the, the Kaplan report itself on gender equity, there were decades worth of studies, papers, things all of us knew were working on. Hey, this has to change. But yet we couldn't get change through the national organizational governance structure. So while the Kaplan report has been really strong, I uh, agree with everything in it. None of that's new. The part that's broken is being able to take those recommendations, put it in the system, and have some real-life tangible action that comes out of it. And so that's what I hope to see out of a more fleet NCAA. I think that, you know, as you look at, you know, sport, the intercollegiate athletic world, 
and you had to deal with COVID this past year and may have to deal with it again. I mean, that must have been, uh, you talk about an experience that, you know, changes and forces you to adapt. How'd you lead through that? You know, I have come out of COVID, not even come out because we're still in it, but come through kind of the eye of the first storm, really thankful to be at the WCC. The alignment within the league from presidents to athletic directors to coaches to student athletes, we were fundamentally trying. We had disagreements along the way about, you know, which options we should do here or there and how we should treat certain sports. But by and large, we knew we wanted to play. We knew we wanted to compete for national titles. And we knew we didn't want to jeopardize anybody's health, student athletes, coaches, administrators. And, and I just felt like that was the right way for us to navigate this. In addition to being in some of the strictest counties, Santa Clara being one of them, San Francisco, another, L.A., in the, in the country at the time. They were so far out in front of shutting things down for all the right reasons, but that made it even that much more difficult to try to conduct live athletic events. So I'm just so thankful that, you know, as a league, we had a 75% completion rate in men's basketball, 90% completion rate in women's basketball. And we held our tournament without fans, but nobody got sick. We made it through. We adhered to all the protocols. And I think we just got through it as a league as best we possibly could have expected. When you think about a commissioner and your role, what do you see the two or three significant things are that a commissioner has to do? Well, I think what a lot of people don't really understand is we don't have that much legitimate authority. Pretty much everything we do is governed by consensus and membership voting. So it really is about trying to get 10, in my case, 10 different perspectives, be it at the president level at the AD level, at the coaches level, to kind of come together and see a common path through. And it might not always be a 10-0 vote, maybe it's 8-2, but, or, you know, 9-1, but really building consensus and developing those relationships with folks so that you can bring people together toward a common direction. And that's not easy when you've got, you know, 10 geographies, 10 different agendas, 10 different perspectives, every single issue. And the presidents are busy. I mean, athletics, you know, even though it's critical in your world to the presidents, they have to run an institution. And athletics is a small piece of that. Yet, from the standpoint of the news that it makes, it's, it's significant. That is such a huge observation about how we operate. The worst thing you can have is presidents at, at either extreme, either so busy that they have no desire or interest in engaging in athletics, don't really value athletics, or presidents so involved in athletics, they're almost acting as athletic directors. I feel like at WCC, we just have a perfect storm, lightning in a bottle of a great mix of presidents that they all value athletics. They get it. They understand it's the front porch to their universities, but they also are engaged when they're needed and appreciate being updated and kept in the know, but don't need to drive the car every day. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a really special thing that many commissioners, you know, value when you have it. So how do you think the NIL is going to play out? You know, I think it's a positive thing for student athletes. I really do. And just like anything at the extremes, 
we've got folks that might take advantage of it and, you know, circumvent the rules, do whatever. On the other extreme, one of the things we fear is student athletes getting taken advantage of, signing away rights into perpetuity or, you know, signing something that makes them ineligible just because of lack of information. So, but again, I think the majority of student athletes engaging in NIL with the right education and the right guidance from their schools are going to have a great experience. And in my mind, I hope it elevates both the student athletes brand, but the sports they compete in as well, because, you know, for those non-enterprise sports, what really brings the fan is when you get to know the athletes. They're amazing young people. They have great stories. You have the affinity of your, you know, alma mater. And say you like the great piece of art, you know, Joe, baseball player made, you're more likely to tune into all the baseball games or some, you know, and I, I just think there's a lot of good that comes out of it. We really have to keep our eye on the edges so that it's either not abused or taken advantage of. Do you have any examples in your conference of some of the NIL deals that have happened? You know, I think folks are still working through those. I know at Gonzaga and BYU, they probably have the best example of programs that schools have launched, either partnering with their business schools, partnering with local communities to help build NIL. But I don't know that I've seen that real groundbreaking deal signed yet. They're in the works. I know they are. But. No doubt. No doubt. So, I mean, the fact that states can have rules and if the states don't have rules, so as you look up and down your schools, how many of them, how are they being governed as it relates to NIL? Well, you you know, again, WCC, unique, as this is everything in the West. California's got the most, you know, um, I guess, revolutionary NIL rules. Oregon has some very direct rules that form how they can handle that up in Oregon. So um, I think when the NCAA didn't pass the whole package of NIL work that had been done, but at least allowed it, unfortunately for us, that was really, really good because we have this California state law that goes beyond what we're all comfortable with. It allows you to pay for play. It allows schools to broker deals. So it's been a little sticky, you know, in the state of California, but what our schools have really doubled down in is the support system for their athletes, the education, the resources, you know, what is a brand? What shouldn't you sign away? And so I think that path for us has really, really been a, a good way to get into this space. What are your hopes coming out of being on the uh, NCA Constitution Committee? What's, uh, if you thought two to three years out, what have you accomplished to say, hey, this has been a meaningful exercise of gathering your group, a variety of different stakeholders. As much heat and negative, you know, criticism that the NCAA has received at my heart, and maybe I'm biased because I was a student athlete as well, I like the collegiate athletic model. I like the fact that there is a single national championship among all the schools, whatever division you're in. And I would hope that the conference structure um, keeps that together. And I know that the sands are shifting a little bit between the power fives, but you know, the conference system really works well for governing regional play and serving up opponents for a national title. So I, I hope I'm optimistic 
there's a way to retain what we've been calling the Big Ten. You know, we're all vying for one national title, but to really get a national governing body that reflects us and the differing needs and gets a little bit more nimble when it comes to making national level policies. So if you think about things that have occurred in your watch as you've gained your experience and you're advising younger people about a career in intercollegiate athletics, what are the two or three things uh, that you would say that you've enjoyed and some of the challenges and pitfalls that they may uh, run into? I can't recommend it enough. It has been a wonderful ride for me. On my very worst day, I'm still working with these amazing young people and watching and being involved in sports. I mean, come on, right? Like, I think the challenges are what we, they're hard. COVID, social justice issues, this NCAA, gender equity, you know, all of these things, they're solvable. And if we just buckle down, do the work, figure it out, I, I just think there's so much more good going on in what we provide college student athletes. And these are huge issues, no doubt, but ones I think we can definitely solve and make all of college athletics better. So from your perspective, what do you feel the two or three things in your career that you are the proudest of? You know, most recently, I think being a small part of the WCC adopting the Russell rule. It's the first collegiate hiring commitment. And basically, our audience, the Russell rule, if you would. It basically is a league-wide rule that mandates any uh, athletic department position that's open. You have to interview in your final interview stage someone of a historically unrepresented background. And, you know, in addition to race and ethnicity, this rule also encompasses, you know, women coaching men's sports. That's an absolutely unrepresented class when it comes to college athletics. The pros have already started having women in these spots, but yet college still hasn't moved the needle there. So there's, it's a broad policy, but we're about to announce our stats for the first year of the policy. And honestly, it was a lot more impactful than I would have guessed or even dreamed and hoped. So you mentioned Russell, uh, that you, is there anything else that you'd uh, say that you really are proud well, of? Yeah, I mean, navigating the WCC through COVID, it was stressful. It was every day it was changing. We were dealing with so many different issues with the different counties, how to test, how to play. But like I said, we, we made it through. We held our championships. We crowned WCC champions, and we brought home four national titles during that kind of crazy crazy year. The social justice issues, how have you gone about dealing with them? When you look at your different states, I mean, they're, they're, they definitely have had some really strong points of view and, uh, you know, protests. Yeah. And I think our colleges, especially in the West Coast, they represent, you know, that national debate and they were right in the front and center of it. But why the Russell rule makes sense for the WCC is because our athletic department populations don't reflect our diversity on either our campuses or in our geography. 
And I think that has to do with, we have quite a few double digit year employees in our athletic departments, top to bottom. And that's very unusual. Athletic departments churn people quite frequently. Um, and again, I think it's a testament to how great these jobs are, attract really good people that stay in these for a long time. But it also, when you're in a smaller department and you don't churn, you also don't have an opportunity to hire and bring in diversity. Or you get very comfortable hiring, you know, from within and from within your arms reach. So for us, I think it was our presidents went after the murder of George Floyd wanted to make sure that we we did something that created meaningful and lasting change. And that's where our hiring commitment really fit us. That's uh, that's an incredible piece that you just mentioned in terms of how that how that works. So when you think about that issue, I mean, it was, you know, between COVID and that, I mean, you couldn't have had more impactful things churning the world and the values and, and testing them. And that's where leadership, that's where leadership comes in and is, and is tested. Yeah. And, you know, I, like I said, the leadership in our league is our board of presidents and our athletic directors. And Frankly, our own WCC staff really pulled together. We actually let our office lease go. We were, in addition to being in the lockdown, even after that, we're in a completely remote environment. And just the way everyone's working together to make it work, it's actually been kind of fun and, and impactful because we're still operating at a very high level. And, you know, we've got employees in Oregon and uh, Vegas and Boise, but we're, we're still clicking away and delivering services at a, at a high level. When you talk about the fact you've had such stability, how much of that do you think is impactful because of not having division one power football? How much do you think that allows you to be more stable? Um, I think honestly, it's less about our sport offerings because we used to have a very strong football history in the WCC. But really, it's about the like-mindedness and the matching core values and mission of our institutions. I've never been in a room of presidents, ADs that are, again, we have our disagreements, we have our 5-5 votes about tactical operational items. But at the core, even from BYU, which is our you know BCS member, to um, maybe our smallest athletic department, St. Mary's, that doesn't have football at all. We're so very aligned in mission, core value, holistic education. And, and I think that's really special. We're probably the most stable conference behind the Ivy League. And we only have, since our founding of eight members, added two schools in the last you know, 30, 40 years. No, I mean, it's, uh, it's incredible. I, I think the last thing I want to just discuss is how much being on campus, on a campus, has helped you in your role? Because there's some commissioners that haven't been on campuses. Where, where do you think that gives you an advantage? And again, I'm biased, but it's really like, you, you can't understand campus unless you've lived and worked on campus. It's so imperative. I really, when we look at hiring folks, that, that's a huge piece when you apply for, you know, at least the WCC to have some understanding or connection with campus because they're different places and they all have different cultures, but you know, there's some wackadoodle stuff that 
you couldn't even imagine lest you lived in the athletic department that it's just so unique. It's higher education meets sports meets business. You know, it's, it's very special and you really do need to serve some time there to understand what it's about. I really appreciate you taking time on a Friday, uh, talking to our audience and sharing your views regarding your impact and what you've had on intercollegiate athletics. So, I mean, you're one of those model people that they, and when you say, hey, who should I look at how they built their career? You're, uh, I think, a, a really exemplary model. So I oh, uh, really appreciate you coming on. And, uh, you know, we've got to know each other a long time ago, back in that, in the, when Larry was looking to bring somebody aboard. So Absolutely. And thank you, Jed, for having me on and also helping me through some of those gateway moments in my career. Without folks like you, I, I might not be where I am today. So I appreciate everything you do for folks coming up in the business. I'm just proud of having the opportunity of being part of your career and watching you develop. So it's fun to watch from afar. and. I'm glad we had a chance to connect. Again, uh, thank you. I appreciate you taking time and sharing your thoughtfulness with us. Absolutely.